Hi, everyone. Duncan Fletcher here, the Executive Director of PADS, back for another PADS podcast. I'm here with my uh, regular colleague, uh, Stephanie Thorburn. Stephanie, how are you doing today? Doing great. Excited about another fantastic podcast, part of our series, and really excited about our special guest today. Let's jump right in. We're very fortunate to have uh, from the University of Florida, Becky Burley. Uh, Becky, let's just, let's jump right into it. You've got a bit of an interesting background, former student athlete, longtime NCAA coach. I'm really curious, how did you make the jump into coaching? Uh, how did that happen for you? Well, that is kind of an interesting story, actually, because um, I knew I wanted to be a coach once I went to college. My parents, on the other hand, thought coaching was like, not a real job. So so it took a little bit of convincing. And I think um, once they saw my passion for it, that really helped. But really the way it started was my college coach was very involved besides coaching our, our college team. He was very involved with the Olympic development program. And that allowed me to get some real world experience as a student athlete that was just, I mean, you couldn't pay for that. Like I was, you know, when I started out, I was probably like getting coffee for everybody. And then it progressed to like maybe doing the warm up and then, you know, taking a group. And all of a sudden, you know, here I was coaching some of these really elite level athletes as an undergrad, which was amazing experience. That's really quite cool. And, and as you think about your experience when you first got started, what were some of the initial things that you noticed as you broke in and, and were, and were look, trying to figure out how to manage athletes? Obviously, you had your own experience as, athlete, as an athlete to draw on. I'm just curious, what kind of jumped to mind in those early days when you were beginning the process of trying to develop those relationships with athletes? Well, it's funny that you asked that because this has come up a lot recently for me because, um, you know, I feel like there's been this shift in coaching where coaching through influence is becoming a lot more um, reality towards the modern athlete because you can't coach over power anymore. I think that's kind of those days are gone and beyond us and probably with good good reason. Um, but when I was coaching, so my first job, I, I graduated in May and became a head coach at Barry College in Rome, Georgia in June. I also have a late birthday. So I was 21 at the time. And when you go into a situation as a head coach at age 21 and you're coaching college kids, some of whom were older than I was on the team, you definitely are not going to have power because you're 21, you know? And so I think I learned without even knowing I was learning it, I learned that influence was the way to coach because it was really the only tool available to me at that time because of my age. And then, you know, five years later, I'm at UF and I'm thinking, okay, like now I have five years of coaching under my belt, but I'm at UF. Like it's a huge jump to go from Barry College to the University of Florida. And so kind of the same thing, despite the, I had a little bit of a cushion in age, I was still 26 at a major power five university. And so I think um, sort of by default, my coaching style was born from that. That's fascinating. And like you said, the, the challenge of, of coaching kids uh, that are older than you, I've actually had that myself. I coached D1 hockey and I came in as a, as a 24-year-old into hockey. And, and you can always have players that are older because they start later. And I was like, there's a couple kids in this team older than me. And you're like, it's a bit of a different dynamic, that's for sure. But I wasn't the head coach. I could hide behind the head coach. So. I can only imagine the challenge that you face. That's really interesting. I'd love it, to it dive. Was totally interesting. Sorry, go ahead, I, Steph. I was just going to say I would love to dive a little bit more into that about you know as you started to kind of sink your teeth in, into 
this coaching world, going from Barry to UF, how did you start to develop what your coaching philosophy would be? You know, what did you take from your experience as a collegiate student athlete coaching at Barry to really start to formulate your style, your philosophy that probably um, stuck with you throughout your career? Well, that you know, what's interesting about that is that I feel like most coaches, you when you're starting out as a coach, you coach the way that you were coached because that's just the example that you have. Um, my college coach, he was really passionate. Um, he was very like, he could give a pregame speech like no other. Um, and I didn't feel like I had that skill like that. So I, I thought for myself, like, you know, as much as I respected him as a coach, like that just wasn't me. Like I was a little bit more on the, um, you know, let's, let's be loyal to one another. Let's create relationships and let's find ways to play for each other, um, more than like, let's fire everybody up. So I feel like despite having some great role models in my coaching career, I had to kind of figure out my own style, which I think was hard because you just don't know what's going to work when you're that age. And you just sort of try some things and figure it out. But like, ultimately it comes back to you have to be authentic to yourself because if you're not like that age group sees right through it. And I think um, having to get there quicker because my role model was so much different than me probably helped me again. And I think that's so um, what you just said is very transferable in the field of athlete development as individuals are in this space, you know, how to connect with your athletes. They have to do it the way that's authentic to them. Uh, because every individual is different, their styles are different, and sometimes trying to replicate someone else's style, you'll come across as inauthentic. So I think that um, that point is something that can resonate with all of our listeners. I think that's actually a fascinating point, and, and it'd be interesting to kind of play off it from your perspective. Is you know really what you're talking about is is finding that authentic communication style that that fits for you. And I guess as you start thinking about your career, as you move through in the coaching perspective, what what were some of the formulas for success in terms of optimizing that communication with the athletes that allowed you to be as successful as you were? I, I think one of the biggest things is investment in the individual, because when you talk about like finding your authentic style, like each player on your team also has their own individual kind of authentic style of way they, they communicate. And if you're, if you don't know that, um, I think it's really easy to run into some roadblocks, um, early because you're, you're sort of using your own point of view and your own lens. But if you try to take on their lens, um, it makes that communication so much easier. I think it's hard to do that sometimes when you're young, because you're like so intent on formatting your own that you're like, Oh, I can't really like focus on what everybody else is too. Like I got to figure out what I am, but, but as you get a little more comfortable and can actually start asking questions and start listening and observing more than telling, um, I think that really paves the way to better and quicker connection with athletes. And to kind of take it from a different angle, which nobody really wants to talk about is like, if you think about the mistakes that you made early on and how they framed you up, 
Like, where did you find yourself kind of driving the, the, the proverbial bus into a ditch out of curiosity? Oh, I mean, I could freaking write a book about how many mistakes <laughs> I made. And we would need way more time on this podcast. Um, and I kind of do feel sorry for the, the people I coached in the younger part of my career because they definitely got a different experience than the ones who were later in my career. I just think coaching is one of those things that's so, it's so crazy because like, we're not really trained as coaches, right? Like, think about it. Like if you go to your dentist, you don't like think, oh, like dentistry is interesting to me. I think I'll get into that. Like you actually have to get trained and in coaching, it's kind of not like that enough. Um, and so there is a lot of trial and error and there is a lot of things that go wrong that, you know, at some point you'll figure that out. And, but that group that you're with at that point, they just get stuck with that wrong feeling, you know? And, um, I think for, luckily for me, I had a great athletic director at Barry when I started, he was a soccer coach himself. So he gave me a little grace. The men's coach there at the time was a very experienced coach. And thankfully I had him to lean on to help me out. Um, but I think that kind of makes or breaks you early in your career. If you can't bounce back from those mistakes that you make or have a little resilience when things go, don't go your way. Um, and I was really fortunate to be in an environment that sort of invited that. I guess one of the things that I'm oh, sorry, go ahead, Steph. No, I was just, you know, as I'm listening to th those kind of great mentors that you had and supporters, um, with, with your athletes, what was your, um, methodology in terms of the off the field coaching kind of what, what was your, your strategy in order to help them, to mentor them, to guide them? It was a great question because I, again, like I think back of all these sets of circumstances that help you or hurt you early in your career. And I had so many that helped me. So one of the things at Barry College is that um, there's a very robust work program there. Everybody has a job. And so I was in charge of supervising people for work study too. So you got these um, opportunities to kind of have interaction with your players outside of the actual playing field that were different, that were talking about things like, hey, responsibility, like, like these were jobs that had to get done. If they didn't get done, our operation didn't work. So things like, you know, lining the fields, um, making sure that the locker room set up, doing things that, you know, laundry for the team, like all these different things that are necessary for the operation to run. But when you get to higher and higher levels, generally the players aren't involved in that as much. So I think although it was still like a little bit intimidating to be supervising like a work crew, um, I had men's soccer players, women's soccer players, I had non-athletes, I had everybody in my work study crew. Um, that having to sort of manage at least laterally, you know, and in some cases up, um, I think really gave me some reps at things that helped me later on in my career. So to that end, I guess one of the things that, you know, we're particularly interested in here at PADS is this concept of, of athlete development and how you kind of create opportunities for your athletes to really be successful in whatever it is that they're interested in pursuing away from their sport. And, and when you sort of reflect back on your career, obviously you're, you've probably dealt with, you know, thousands of athletes, probably through your, your 25 year coaching career. How did you approach seeing them develop as people? What was the, the important things that you would emphasize with your athletes? How did you support that? And what were some of the things that 
that you really emphasize for your athletes so that it wasn't necessarily all about what was taking place on the pitch. It was also about their academics and, you know, the things that led after their, their, their four year experience at your institution. Well, I, I played at division three level, which, you know, the student athlete is such a big piece of that. Like you are not an athlete first, you are totally a student first. Um, I think that set the tone for me in terms of my um, interest in my players' academic careers. Um, I think also like being at, being at a school like Barry, where it's 1,800 kids, small school, you really got the opportunity to be more involved. I was their academic advisor. I was the person who was, you know, helping them plan for their future. And then when I got to Florida, you know, again, like it's great because you have all these resources of people to help you that are way more qualified than I was at those tasks. But you do feel like you're giving up like a little bit of the non-soccer part of your relationship. And so it has to kind of take on a different look at a place like Florida. Like you almost have to make the opportunities yourself to be involved with them beyond the field because they may not come naturally like they did at those other levels. And, you know, for me, like... We, we invested a lot in having like individual player meetings. And one of the first questions I would always like to ask in those meetings is, what's the most important thing we should be talking about right now? And that could go anywhere. That could go soccer. That could go life. That could go academics. That could go anywhere. And to be honest with you, when that question started, you know, somebody might say like, well, you know, I'm really struggling with my chemistry class. And then as you continue to sort of peel back the onion a little bit, like sometimes that, that was not even the issue, the chemistry class. It was more about like, you know, how do I manage what I want to do in the future while I'm here in the present? Like, um, how do I tell my parents, this is not what I want to major in and I have no passion for it. Like it, it just goes in so many directions, but like having a platform to have those conversations, it's important to make it like, you can't just think it's going to happen because what's going to happen is you're going to see them every day for your practice time. If you don't make it happen in those other spaces, honestly, it probably won't because these athletes are scheduled to the minute. And so you have to kind of create a platform for them to have those conversations with you. And so that, that sort of proactive approach is, is critical in order to drive that, that conversation. When you started talking to your athletes about what they were thinking about away from the pitch, how do you feel that those those conversations and, and helping them identify a direction away from the pitch, how does that help them perform on it from your perspective? Well, I think that if you show that you're invested in someone in, in a way that doesn't benefit you directly, you know, so for example, like we're not talking soccer. So yeah, like, do I want them to play the best they possibly can 100%, but do I want them to also, you know, have a rich and full life and be involved in things outside of my sport, which shows that I'm worried about them holistically and not just as an athlete. I think that's what kind of creates that deeper relationship with the players. But it's it's really, really easy. It's almost like the default to stay in the sport lane. And so to get out of the sport lane requires like an intentionality that you have to decide if this is what you're going to invest in. And for me, it fit perfectly with my coaching philosophy because back to like what I said when I first started, you know, it was about influence. It was about engagement. It was about loyalty. 
Um, and all those things, I think, were predicated on me showing them that I was caring about them more than just what they could do for me on the soccer field. I think that ties into like a championship mindset off off the pitch, you know, showing yeah, no that. Doubt. Yeah, no doubt. Because you're right. Like if I, I don't know, there's there's something I don't know if you can quantify it, but like the power of wanting to play hard for one another because you're invested in one another like that pays so many more dividends than just, you know, uh, okay, we understand our four, four, two formation, you know, like there, I'm not dismissing that you need like a strong process in your sport related part of your coaching, but we all know like the power of team chemistry and that team chemistry doesn't come from necessarily just us knowing what to do in our four, four, two formation. That's absolutely right. And I think that kind of, you know, that translates a little bit into, you know, some of the projects you've got going on uh, after you've left coaching and this idea of what actually drives winning and what creates winning environments. Could you talk a little bit about what drove you to kind of get involved in that project? And, and I'm particularly interested, you know, as you kind of talk about what drives winning and particularly what creates these winning environments, what sort of have you taken away from that? And, and what are you trying to share with the broader community or the sport community about those two concepts? Well, I, I feel like I got like access to this free education of coaches of all different sports and all different aspects and like that, you can't pay for that. And I was able to get that through my involvement in What Drives Winning. And how it started was um, I met Brett Ledbetter, who's my business partner. When I started talking to him, he was running a basketball academy for fifth to 12th graders in St. Louis. And I actually went up there to talk to him about footwork because I thought there was some transferability of the footwork system he was teaching to soccer. Well, about halfway through the day, he started talking about this film room concept that he had where he would take uh, clips from players, coaches, um, different people that he knew his athletes would really respect, showing them and then creating discussion around that media. Well, it was super engaging because the kids were really looked up to these people on the screen it was engaging because they were the ones doing all the talking. Brett was really just facilitating the conversation. And I got intrigued by it and asked him to come work with our team. He did. Other coaches at Florida saw it. Um, we started like collaborating with other teams. Um, he started working with them. And then we started this head coaches collaboration, which was how do we get all of this intellectual capital in the room together, sort of talking about some of these topics. And then once we saw how powerful that was, we decided like, why couldn't we do this on a national level? And that was probably us just being naive because we're like, we've never put on a conference. Like we didn't know anything about that. And we're like, well, let's just try it. And so we did. And the first conference was in St. Louis. We had a huge attendance. It was like, I don't know, six, 700 people there. Um, and it almost felt like you would like found your tribe of people who were interested in being ultra competitive but at the same time, not losing sight of the fact that these were human beings and not human doings in front of us that we could actually help them take their sport experience and make it more than just about the outcome. That's really interesting. And then when you kind of look at the, when you start thinking about what creates a winning environment, what do you immediately draw to? What is critical from your perspective? You know, uh, there, there's a class that we're teaching at UF now. It's actually called What Drives Winning Environments. And one of the 
one of the things I thought about when we started that class was even after 20 plus years of coaching, that was such a valuable set of information for me because it was all about like defining, managing, and modeling your expectations. And as simple as that sounds, there's a lot to that. You know, it takes a lot to to really sit down and think through what you want to define, what's important to you. And then to manage those things, you know, to make sure that you're pointing out when people are doing it right, but also getting them back on track when they're doing it not right. And then of course, modeling is something that happens just all the time. Like if you're going to be the leader and you're asking about a particular expectation, but you're not willing to model that, that's never going to work. And so I felt like that class was so valuable to me. That kind of came later in my coaching career. And I kind of wish that I had had that information earlier. Interesting. I would love for you to share, you know, being a female coach, the evolution of females in coaching, advice that you might give to those that want to go into coaching that are females, Um, just kind of your journey. It's obviously uh, being a female in a male dominated world in terms of sport can be difficult. So any words of advice, any experiences you can share? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question because uh, although I don't think this is necessarily um, a gendered issue, I think that what's really challenging in coaching is that every single day you are making judgments, right? And so like I pick a starting lineup, I pick who's going to make the travel squad, I pick who's going to sub into a game, and those all come across to the athletes as judgments. And Obviously, there's going to be some people who are very happy with those judgments and some people who aren't. And when they aren't, you know, it's very easy to take that kind of feedback personally. And again, like it's not just that women take things personally and men do too. um, But I feel like it kind of can really hurt your spirit when you're getting this, you know, negative feedback about the decisions you've made um, because it's just the nature of it. Everyone, everyone is out for their self-interest and not in a bad way. Like that's just human nature. Um, and I'm making these decisions that could go against their self-interest. How do I not take all of that emotional baggage on, on a daily basis? And for me, you know, I think one of the, one of the major reasons I was able to have such a long career was I learned to compartmentalize and I learned to sort of look at when I was getting some of that feedback it was more about the person giving the feedback than it was about me. And that not to like, I would definitely need to take responsibility when responsibility is mine, but I also don't, don't feel the need to take on too much because like if a player is like, let's say their role is declining and that's really threatening to them. Like they're going to, they're going to have a reaction to that. That really isn't anything to do with you. It, that reaction is theirs, but how do you not take that on? to make it to where you're like going home every night and carrying this, you know, 20 pounds of emotional baggage back into your family. That's the, that is definitely tricky at a wager. Go ahead, Steph. No, I was just going to say, I think that's so valuable for people that are trying to get into the space of coaching or athlete development. I'm hearing this because you, you, we often invest our entire selves into something. And even though, you know, it's not personal, you take it personally, you know, we're, we're humans, we're not robots. So to hear 
um, that often it's, it's really about what they're facing, but you're the one receiving that information. I think it's just helpful to hear that from someone that's been through it, lived it, has found success. So, you know, I appreciate you sharing that. Well, and what I would add to that stuff is that if, if you are a safe place for people to offload that anxiety, that's not a bad thing. I mean, because athletes need that sometimes and them knowing that they can come to you with that feedback and you're not going to have a reaction or you're not going to hold it against them later. Um, you know, now you have to figure out how you're going to deal with that. And, um, like I still to this day on my desk, every desk I've had in my career, I have a little container of Q-tips to remind myself, um, quit taking it personally, Q-tip. <laughs> and it's just like a very simple, I don't know, like, I don't know why it works for me, but it's just a very simple reminder for me that like, it's not about you. And when you think it's about you, um, you know, when you take it personally, the, the feedback that you're getting there, I think that's when you can really get yourself into trouble in terms of um, fracturing relationships with players. I love that. Q-tip. That's fantastic. <laughs> Folks at home, if you're listening to that, there you go. That's a great one. I think just to kind of wind it a little bit back to one thing I'd like to maybe pull the thread a little bit harder on is just really kind of getting your feel for, you know, obviously as you get, you, as you start working with a, you know, a major university, there's other individuals in and around the, the, the organization that are helping support your athletes. So it could be your you know, uh, academic advisors, it could be your, you know, strength and conditioning, it could be nutrition. And a lot of those things aren't directly related to what's happening on the pitch, but they're critical to have successful athletes. And there are also folks, you know, you got your sports psychologists and you have your athlete development specialists. I think from your perspective as a coach, you know, you're kind of focused on, you know, wins and losses. What are the, what is, what would you recommend for those folks who are working with these athletes away from the pitch that are trying to optimize them both on in terms of um, their personal development and their sport development? What's helpful for you? What do you care about? What do you want to know about? What's relevant? And, what, and how can that information be shared with you so that you get a better picture for your athletes and how to basically manage them on a day-to-day basis? And, and that's kind of a long question. I hope it made sense, but that's kind of what I was hoping to kind of riff with you a little bit further on. No, it's a, it is a really valuable question because I feel like, especially when you get into a larger organization where more and more people are touching your athletes on a daily basis, like how do you manage that flow of information? Because it's a lot and it's important because every bit of those different roles plays a role in your athlete's life. And if you can't sort of keep a pulse on that, then it does feel like you're sort of floating into just tactical and technical space with your sport. So, you know, one of the things I try to do is uh, the relationship I had with my staff was really important, like feel, making them feel included, making them feel like their voice mattered. Um, you know, you always know sort of like where the safe spaces are on your team, where the players can talk, like maybe it's the training room, maybe it's the academic advisor's office, uh, maybe it's the nutritionist. But like having a good relationship with that person to where you know like what boundaries to keep and where to, you know, make sure that things are communicated that are important for the head coach to know. Um, because you don't want to lose the trust that the players have in those accessory people either. Like you don't want to 
feel like they have to report everything to you. It's kind of like, how can you give them a filter that allows them to keep confidence with players, but at the same time provides you valuable information that you know could make that person's life better. Um, but they're, they're, the, I think it's the thing they don't tell you when you go into coaching. Like managing a staff is hard. Like I think that's true in any environment, just not even coaching. Um, and you don't, again, really get trained for that. So like staff dynamics and how that communication flows and whether or not, you know, like, like I said, those relationships are safe spaces for your players, like all of that matters. And as the head coach, you're kind of in charge of that. Like you are the one that's going to drive that and being aware of it is probably the first step, but then, you know, having open and good and regular communication is probably the next step. I appreciate that response. Go ahead, Steph. Yeah. Um, you know, I know you talked about team chemistry and also going all in for each other when you're competing. Um, in the last two years, the the world of NIL has come to fruition, which often isn't about team and um, mm-hmm. unity. It's, it's about self, right? Promotion of self. There are some individuals, twins that have gotten deals and things like that. So just wondering if you... Um, I know you recently retired, but just kind of your thoughts on how that impacts that sense of team, team chemistry and um, being unified rather than, you know, let me be out for myself to get the biggest deal. Yeah, you bring up a really, really valid issue. Um, I think that's that is a new challenge in modern coaching um, NIL because a lot of NIL is contrary to team. Um, and so is social media. Like if you want to go even broader, um, and obviously NIL incentivizes athletes to use social media. And some athletes will say like, "Mm, I don't really, really feel that healthy on social media, but I kind of have to do it because it's part of how I make my money. Um, and I think again, like I was not, you know, growing up in the digital age, um, so for me to try and give advice to someone about social media, I think um, is unwise. It's more like I just need to understand from their perspective where the challenges are for them and how what makes it difficult for them to, you know, prioritize team when these things are pulling on them. Um, and and I think if I if I tried to tell them, they're going to be like, you just you don't get my world, which is true. And so trying to get to a point of understanding, I think is really much more valuable than trying to get to a point of advising. Um, but I certainly think it is within my role to help them navigate these challenges because those are real. Like those are super real things that are, our modern athlete is currently dealing with. And I think that's very, you know, wise and astute of you to say, you know, I'm not the expert in this. Who am I to tell them what to do? Um, But listen and advise and and perhaps bring in those industry experts that can shed light. And NIL has opened up, you know, a whole can of worms from the financial impacts. You know, yes, it's great they're making money, but if if they're receiving financial aid, how that impacts them, paying taxes, all of that. So, yeah, tons of... um tons of accessory issues that come with NIL that I think no one really understood when it started. Um, and certainly we've sort of just 
jumped in headfirst into the NIL world without a lot of regulation at this point, which I'm sure is coming. But um, I think at this point right now, it's like trying to help them deal with the real world issues that they're facing with that. So with that, I think we've uh, it's been a good 30 minute conversation. I think one of the things I was going to ask you, have we missed anything? Is there anything that you'd like to talk about that we really haven't had a chance to dive into? You know, the one thing that I was thinking about when we were talking about the Q-tip thing is um, I also have another thing that I've stolen from someone. I really need to figure out who it is because I use it all the time and don't give credit. <laughs> but I, I had this thing. It was on my phone. It was on my um, computer at work just to remind me. Um, and it was get curious, not furious. And I know Ted Lasso said, get curious, not judgmental, but I like get curious, not furious. <laughs> um, because it just, I feel like we don't allow athletes or people in general to include adversity in their expectations for some reason. And we all know that like the adversity is where we're going to grow and the adversity is going to happen. We all know it's going to happen. But for whatever reason, we don't do a great job of preparing people for it. And so the reason I bring up the get curious, not furious is because, again, as a leader or as a coach, um, I am dealing with 18 to 22 year olds. Like there are going to be hiccups. There are going to be things that on the surface would be very easy to get furious about. But in the end, like it's something that is my role as as their leader is to help them how they respond to those issues that come up, not so much totally avoid them. That would be great in a, in a, in a practical world, probably not going to happen, but in an ideal world, it would be great if we could help them avoid all of those issues. But in the end, um, we want to model to them that we also can respond in a way that helps them and not just like, you know, again, like I think when we get really furious about things like that, it's probably focusing back on like, oh, how is this going to make me look? Or how is this going to make our team look or our program look? Um, and so when you take yourself out of that mix and and sort of just like, okay, let's ask some questions here. Let's get to the, the bottom of the behavior. And can we influence a change in the behavior by kind of supporting them through it? And that, that doesn't mean like letting people off the hook. There's still consequence to action. But trying to help them through it as opposed to just being the person who, you know, meets out the punishment. I think that's a, it's a perfect way to end it. I think the, that's a nugget of information that is super helpful for any coach. And it's obviously super helpful for any athlete development specialist. So with that, uh, on behalf of pads, Stephanie Thorburn, uh, Becky Burley, thank you again for making the time to participate in our pads podcast today. Yeah, I loved it. You guys had some amazing questions. Thanks for inviting me. You're welcome. Thanks again.